Well, thanks so much, Sage, for reading so well for us. And uh, I know what you're thinking, Ben. You've made a terrible mistake. You've given us a Good Friday reading on Easter Sunday. And uh, you're right. (laughs) Hear me out. Uh, In the breakup of these passages and Sundays, as we planned uh, 12 months ago, we uh, worked out that actually we're going to land here at the crucifixion on Easter Sunday, and we're okay with that, because every day is a celebration of Jesus being the risen and reigning Lord of all. And so you can come back next week and we're going to celebrate the resurrection all over again, as we do every Sunday when we gather in the name of Jesus. Uh, But today, because this is where we've landed on this 40th sermon in the book of Luke, uh, we're going to stick with the crucifixion. And uh, I think that's okay too. Hear me justify myself up here. Because the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus are inextricably linked. Uh, They're both part of that one saving event that God was doing in Jesus for the sake of you and me. And we're going to reflect on that Uh, a bit further together this morning. If you were with us on Friday, we left off with Jesus having been condemned to death as uh, a clearly innocent man. And not just innocent of the trumped up charges and and the accusations made against him, but actually as the sinless, perfect son of God who would go to his death on the cross as the innocent one for the sake of the guilty, that we might know the forgiveness and the life that comes through his death and his resurrection. And as Jesus is led away and he's heading towards the cross, we began our reading today with that uh, fairly unusual prophecy of Jesus saying to the women of Jerusalem, don't grieve for me. It's like a picture of a great musical, isn't it? Don't grieve for me, women of Jerusalem. Grieve for yourselves. Jesus is looking to that prophecy that we've already heard from his lips, that the city of Jerusalem will be destroyed. And it's a picture of, if this is what happens when light and life and love from God comes into the world in the person of Jesus, if this is what humanity does when Jesus turns up, what will they do to one another when Jesus isn't here? It's Jesus lamenting the darkness and the depravity of humanity in a world that is in rebellion against the God who made us and who loves us. And so that prophecy of Jesus pointing to the darkness of this world gives us further reason for him to go to the cross where he will bear the darkness of God's judgment the darkness of human sin, the darkness of death and hell he would wear in himself in order that he might provide the light, the life, the love that we so desperately need in order to be rescued from that darkness of sin and death and brought into the light of his eternal kingdom. And as Jesus goes and we hear Luke's account of Jesus' crucifixion, We see what it is that Jesus' death does for those who would trust and follow him. When God looks at the depravity and the darkness of this world, what does he send? He doesn't just send Jesus to give us some advice of a better path forward. Guys, I think you're doing it wrong. Maybe try it this way. He doesn't just send a guru who can help us with a better program of human advancement. 
No, he sends us a saviour and a king. And that saviour king, as he goes to the cross, he brings forgiveness, salvation, and a welcome back into God's eternal kingdom. They're the three things I want us to see from this passage. The forgiveness, the salvation, and the welcome back into God's eternal family. As Jesus heads towards the cross, it's remarkable that he's still thinking about other people. As he's about to undergo the most excruciating, actually the place that where we get the word excruciating from is crucifixion. The worst way that humans have devised to kill one another, as Jesus is going up the hill to experience crucifixion and to die for the sins of the world and to bear God's judgment at our sin, he's still thinking of other people. So sinlessly perfect he is. And as they nail him to the cross and place him in that hole and hoist him up to suffocate in his own blood, Jesus prays for those who kill him. Verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. It's such a gracious prayer, isn't it? Because in lots of ways they knew exactly what they were doing. But the depths of their depravity they do not grasp as they hoist the Son of God up on that cross to be executed between two criminals, to be numbered among the transgressors, as Isaiah prophesied. And Jesus prays for their forgiveness, knowing that that kind of forgiveness from God, that kind of blasphemous sin that rejects and casts aside God's chosen Saviour King, that can only be forgiven through Jesus' death, in their place. And what's a wonderful thing is that uh, in Luke's um, sequel to his gospel account in the book of Acts, you've got to come back next year when we jump into the book of Acts, some of these very same people still in Jerusalem after Jesus has risen and returned to the right hand of the Father, as Jesus' apostles start to teach about Jesus' death and resurrection many of them do come to experience the forgiveness of God. And I hope that gives you an encouragement this morning. That if some of those standing there who are responsible firsthand for Jesus' execution are able to accept the open invitation of forgiveness of their sins, then surely that means for you and for me that we're not too far away. That we're not outside the reach or beyond the scope of Jesus' forgiving death and God's reconciling love. And so the first thing that we want to say this morning is that the forgiveness of our sins, the most wonderful gift in all the world, is freely available to anyone. No matter who you are or where you've been, what you've done, cross of Jesus is big enough, it is vast enough, it is sufficient enough to deal with your sin and to bring you back. That's why Jesus came. He came to be the dying and rising saviour who forgives even the worst of sinners like me. 
The forgiveness of sins is what we needed. And the forgiveness of sins is available through Jesus because he is the saviour, the saviour king. Pick it up with me at verse 35. Hopefully you're reading along in Luke 23, where this is what we read, that the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. That's brash, isn't it? When you're already dying next to Jesus, you're dying the death of a criminal. You're still willing to throw insults? He said, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. It's remarkable that these insults, the mockery, more than the suffering is what Luke emphasises. And it's ironic, isn't it, this kind of mockery. They understood something about Jesus' life. They understood that central to Jesus' life and his mission was salvation, saving people. That's what the Messiah does. He's a rescuer, a rescuing king. They knew that from what Jesus had taught, and what Jesus had done, from his miracles, from people's testimony about Jesus. That he was all about saving people, but here he was, nailed to a cross. Some saviour you are. And the ironic mockery is Jesus, come down off the cross that you might save yourself. Failing to realise that Jesus is saving others by staying on the cross. Saying to Jesus... Come down off the cross and save yourself and us. Is a failure to recognise that his death on the cross is the instrument of salvation as he bears God's wrath and takes the sin of the world upon himself. It's here that Jesus is turning aside everything that stands in the way of you and me knowing God and being reconciled to him. Saving us from sin and death by taking sin and death upon himself. Can't come down off the cross, setting aside the very means by which God would save those who would trust in Him. I read some time ago the story of uh, Christy McAllister, who was a paramedic on a helicopter in the 98 Sydney to Hobart. Remember, that was the really bad one. 140 kilometre an hour hurricane force winds, 40 foot waves. Six people died, 55 sailors rescued by helicopter. Christy McAllister was one of those rescuers winched down from the helicopter. Imagine those sailors as Christy comes. What a, what a wonderful sight of rescue that would have been for them in the middle of Bass Strait. Here she comes to rescue. What are you going to say to her as she's winched down? Unhook the winch and save us? That doesn't make sense. Because Christy on the winch is the very means by which they would be rescued and Jesus on the cross, the very means by which 
He is saving those who would trust and follow him. Jesus stays on the cross. Personal, costly, sacrificial action of the the Saviour King for the sake of the world. The world who hated and despised him. The world who rejected and executed him. For our sake, he dies on that cross, the very instrument by which God would deal with human sin and his just judgment in order to give us the forgiveness, the salvation that we so desperately need. And at that scene of Jesus' cross, on another cross right next to him, we see the contrasting response of the second thief, the second criminal executed next to him who doesn't brashly throw more insults at Jesus as he dies but recognises his own guilt and Jesus' sinless death as the king of the world who acknowledges what he needs and what Jesus is and says to Jesus in verse 42, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's a model response, picking up the fact that he is dying the death that he deserved, but what he needs is what Jesus' death is purchasing for him, the hope of everlasting life in Jesus' kingdom. And if you and I can see today that we need the forgiveness, the salvation, if we can see that we've fallen short of God's glory, that we've sinned against him in thought and word and deed. We can see that we in this world are still living under the shadow of death and need a saviour through the forgiveness of our sins. What wonderful assurance it is when Jesus says to the thief on the cross who has no opportunity to fix himself up, No opportunity to right his wrongs. No opportunity to prove his worth, but simply throws himself with his last breaths on the mercy of Jesus. And Jesus guarantees him with full assurance, today you will be with me in paradise. That your death will be an entrance not into everlasting death and damnation, but into everlasting glory and peace. The forgiveness and the salvation that Jesus offers that comes by merely trusting in him, throwing ourselves on his mercy like the thief on the cross. That assurance we can have of forgiveness, of everlasting life, it doesn't come through the things that we then do to prove ourselves worthy or to pay Jesus back or to even up the score. It is entirely based on Jesus' merits, his atoning death, his great love. And like the thief on the cross, the challenge for you and for me is to throw ourselves on Jesus' mercy in order that we might have that welcome, that assurance of belonging to him forever. 
Well, in this scene, the darkness descends on Jerusalem as a picture of God's wrath and human sin being poured out on Jesus. But at the same time, the wonderful assurance is that the the curtain, temp, the temple curtain, the six-ton, twenty-meter-high curtain, is ripped in half from top to bottom, as if to say, there is no more barrier. There is no more need for separation. There is hope. There is life to come back into God's presence forever, just as Jesus promised to the thief on the cross, to know that Jesus' death has done what he said it would do, what God promised it would do, opened for us the gate of glory. Friends, the the three things that we need this Easter, given that we live under the shadow of death, the darkness of our own sin and the sin of our world, We need forgiveness. And if Jesus gave it even to those who would execute him, then the offer's on the table for you and me. Because he's the saviour who didn't come down off the cross but died that we might live. That he's taken the darkness of judgment and sin, that he's opened the curtain and given us access to the Father in order that the assurance of that welcome, you will be with me in paradise, might belong to you and me as well, if we would but trust in him. More of that next week as we think about the resurrection. But given it is Easter Day, I've asked Jocelyn to come and to share with us her own personal reflection on the hope that Easter gives. I've been thinking a little bit this week about hope blooming in the midst of darkness. Um, When we were in lockdown last year, I, like most other people in Australia, uh, spent a lot more time out walking. Um, And because of the restrictions on our movements, I spent a lot of time walking around my local neighbourhood in Dulwich Hill. And I don't know if it was just um, because I was out so much more or because I was needing something to hold on to, but it felt like last spring was just particularly spectacular. Uh, Like the flowers were out in full force. It just, it was overwhelming. And I think my hay fever was feeling it, uh, for sure. But it just felt like in the midst of this kind of really oppressive, really restrictive situation, we could go out for a walk. I could, I just really came to appreciate my own neighbourhood and particularly people's gardens. And to see these little, they were just like, it was like hope blooming. Um, these signs of spring coming, of new life coming, and all this, this beauty that was around us, even as um, we were struggling at being home, struggling with being alone. It felt a little bit hopeless and so isolating, uh, but there were just these spots of joy and life every time I stepped out the front door. I often uh, wonder, as we're reading through the Easter narrative, about the women who went to Jesus' tomb. We're going to be talking a bit more about them next week. But we see them walking towards Jesus' tomb. They're going with spices and oils. They're going to anoint Jesus' body for death. And I just imagine them walking towards Jesus' tomb on that day, the only ones 
of all the people who had said they loved him, of all the people who had followed him, who had asked things of him, these are the only ones who wanted to go and to prepare his body properly for burial. What a long, dark walk. They had walked with Jesus, they had eaten with Jesus, they had laughed with Jesus. Three years they had seen him heal people who had lived their whole lives with illness. They had seen him cast out demons that no one else had the power to get rid of. They had seen him draw people to himself that everyone else was repulsed by. Declare himself to be the son of God and then back up those claims by demonstrating power over a storm, by feeding a multitude, by teaching with authority that no one else had. And now, he's dead. And they're walking to his tomb alone. And they know that there's a huge stone that's been rolled in front of the tomb, and they don't even know how they're going to get it out of the way. This whole thing might be pointless. But they just have to go. They have to do the best that they can to honour this man who they loved so much. And they get there. And the stone is gone. And the tomb is empty. And there's an angel saying, why are you looking for the living in the place of the dead? And in the midst of their terror and their confusion that you can only imagine they would have been feeling in finding this scene before them, there's this glimmer of hope. I mean, this is the man who raised Lazarus from the dead, right? This is the man that raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And now his tomb is empty. And hope could bloom again in the midst of their darkness and despair. Now, this is a hope for the women who walked with Jesus, who had loved him and had watched him die. There's hope for them and the possibility that they might receive their friend back again. But is there more than this in this scene? Is there hope for them beyond just seeing their friend, this person they love so much again? Is there hope for us as we look at the empty tomb? In 1 Corinthians, Jesus, sorry, Paul describes Jesus as the first fruits from among the dead. He is like the first flower to bloom at the beginning of spring. Now, if there was just that one flower, if we saw Jesus rising from the dead and showing his power over death, showing that he had defeated sin and death at the cross, if that was all there was, well, that would be beautiful. But there's never just one flower. That first flower at the beginning of the spring is the sign that spring is coming. All the other flowers are about to follow. It's that sign of hope, of new life. So when we see the empty tune, we do see the defeat of sin and death. And we see that body that he walked around in for the next 40 days before he ascended to heaven. And it's more than just that thing in itself. It's the sign of what is to come for us. He is the first fruits of, for all of us of what is to come. His resurrection is the promise of our resurrection as well. So we don't need to fear death because it has been defeated once and for all. We don't need to dread the decline of our bodies as we age because that's only temporary. 
We don't need to be tied to the sickness and the brokenness that we feel that is part of our daily life in so many ways in our present bodies because Jesus' resurrection shows us that we will be given bodies that are fit for eternity with God. Looking for flowers in the spring gives hope of warm weather and beautiful gardens and something to focus on rather than COVID. But most of those flowers are are gone already. My garden, after all the rain that we had, is half dead (laughs) again. But looking at the empty tomb gives me hope that will sustain me not only for a season, but for the rest of my life into eternity. The women who went to the tomb that day They couldn't fully fully comprehend the significance of what had happened. It was too early for them to be able to tell what it all meant. But today we can celebrate fully the hope that we have because we know that Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. We're going to sing about that hope that we have in Christ, the hope that sustains us for the rest of our lives into eternity. Uh, So as the band comes up, let's